0: I once attended a church where one of the leaders had a fiery temper, and he would sit in committee meetings, and he'd pound the table, and he'd holler at people, demanding to get his way and trying to impose his will on people. This man's name was John, and on two occasions, he even provoked a loud argument with another church member out in the church lobby in front of everyone right after worship. It was not a pretty picture. I learned that that this behavior had been going on at this church for years. I was a very young believer at the time, and and I didn't understand why this was allowed to continue. After all, the Bible makes it clear that church leaders are to be self-controlled, sober-minded, and not quarrelsome. John was none of those things. I asked another church leader about this and he said, well, that's just the way John is. He's always had an anger problem and he's never going to change. We all just need to extend him some grace. That didn't seem right to me. Again, I was was new in the faith, and it took me quite a while to, to ponder that and to pray over that and to sort it out. But ultimately, I realized that this church was confused. You see, they weren't extending grace. They were practicing tolerance. And sometimes those two things look very similar, but they're not the same. In fact, they're distinctly different, and grace is vastly preferable to tolerance. Jesus makes this very clear in one of His love letters to the church. These unique letters that we find in the book of Revelation. These are letters that Jesus personally dictates to seven different churches. And He asks the Apostle John to write down what Jesus says and then to send these letters out. And the letters are preserved for us and given to us through the Bible. Because these letters are not just for those original seven churches. They're for every church in every age so that we can better understand the love of Jesus. We can better understand how to love Him and how we can live as His faithful followers. Last fall, we looked at three of these love letters from Jesus. And this month, we're going to look at three more. And today, we're going to examine a letter that helps us grasp the vital difference between tolerance... And grace. Please look with me into the book of Revelation, chapter 2, starting in verse 18. This is Jesus speaking, talking to the Apostle John, and he says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira "Right, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. First, this is, a, this is a pretty dramatic way to start a letter, isn't it? Jesus obviously wants to get the attention of the church and so he, he begins with this vivid description of Himself, this image of Himself as the Son of God whose eyes blaze with fire. Jesus wants us to know that His gaze is penetrating and He can see far more than just what's on the outside. His fiery eyes can look into our minds and our hearts and our souls. You see, we can't bluster or hide or pretend with the Son of God. He's able to see what we do and He can see who we are. And then, while in our own lives we're often unstable and erratic, Jesus, through this image, reveals himself as unshakable and immovable, planted firmly on his sturdy bronze-like feet. Jesus, rock solid, gazing out at his people. And here in this letter, he turns that gaze on the believers in the ancient city of Thyatira. And here's what's really interesting, in some ways. Their community was a lot like modern-day America. You see, Thyatira was a place where commerce was king. Life was centered on buying and selling. Consumerism and materialism were their two primary gods, which, if we're honest, is just like America. And if you think that's too harsh of a description, consider this. How many Americans go shopping on Black Friday? And how many Americans worship Jesus on Good Friday? Even among Christians, the shoppers vastly outnumber the worshipers, which says a lot about our priorities. Jesus sees this. He sees what we do. He sees who we are. He sees how we prioritize life. And part of what we need to understand is that business, buying, selling, consuming, business affects far more affects more than the marketplace. It impacts our culture. And that's true here in this country and it was very true in Thyatira, the the tentacles of commerce in that community were wrapped around many other aspects of life. The marketplace, the business community was built around a number of professional associations called guilds. Guilds are forerunners of our modern-day trade unions and they had guilds for weavers and for potters and for bronze makers and for bakers and many more, scores and scores of guilds. But here's the catch, if you live in Thyatira and you have a trade and you want to have access to the marketplace, you must join a guild. And the guild is not just a business group, it's also a social group. And they hold meetings and festivals, usually in pagan temples where meals involve toasts to idols and pagan sexual rituals. So believers in Thyatira. Most of whom belong to a guild find it very challenging to stay faithful to Jesus and still be able to practice their trade and earn a living. These are the people that Jesus is watching. And as He looks at this church, His church, He sees that they are men and women of faith. They love God and they love each other. They're serving each other and and, and the community around them. Jesus even says you're doing more now than you used to do when you first got started. Many Bible commentators believe that what Jesus is saying here is that they are leading more and more people to Christ. That they're having an impact and that the church is growing. And so Jesus is painting a picture here of a group of people who do far more than just go to church. They are a well rounded, active spiritual community. They help each other live by faith. And then they make a difference in the lives of their neighbors. There is much here in this church to commend, and Jesus does. And yet, at the same time, these believers also are at risk. They're at risk because many of them, instead of being an influence on the culture, They're letting the culture influence them. And the result is that they're practicing tolerance when they should be practicing grace. Look what Jesus says next, verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate, there's that word, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, Then all the churches will know that I am He who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. So after commending this church for what they're doing well, Jesus confronts them because they've embraced the message of a false prophet. Jesus calls her Jezebel, but that is a symbolic name, not a literal name. Jesus labels her this way to draw a link between her and the actual Jezebel of the Old Testament. And that woman was an evil genius. You see, she did not try to lead people away from God. She tried to graft the worship of pagan gods onto the worship of the one true God. That is so sneaky because it's so much more palatable. You don't need to abandon God, just add this to your faith. It's insidious and yet it can draw people away from God. And the Jezebel equivalent in Thyatira is doing much the same thing. She's not denying the importance of following Jesus, she just wants to graft paganism onto Christianity. And by claiming to be a prophet, she's doing more than teaching. She is saying, God spoke to me and told me to tell you this. And by the way, some people have used this passage to claim that women cannot be prophets. And that's obviously incorrect because the Apostle Paul tells us that there were female prophets in the early church. The issue here is not the sex of the prophet, but the message of the prophet. And her message is demonstrably false. Sexual immorality, pagan worship, that's not who God asks us to be and what God asks us to do. And yet this false message has a very real appeal to guild members who regularly deal with the temptation of paganism. They're surrounded by it. They're immersed in it. And it's hard to know where to draw the lines. To get a handle on this, let's let's picture ourselves. Picture yourself. You're a guild member in Thyatira. All you want to do is practice your trade. And you're also a follower of Jesus. So you go to a meeting of your guild. And it's a dinner meeting at a local pagan temple. And they serve some food and during the meal they take part of that food and they engage in sacrificing that food to an idol. It's a form of pagan worship. And you have your business meeting and you talk about trade and what's going on in the marketplace. And then after dinner, people get up and they troop over to another part of the temple so they can go visit the temple prostitutes. Everybody does this. You're part of the guild. You need to stay connected to the guild to have good business relationships and to maintain your trade and to earn a living. But if you're a follower of Jesus, what do you do in that situation? Where do you draw the lines? It is a dilemma. And then Jezebel shows up and says, Just do it. God says it's okay. What a relief. You can just go along to get along. It's very tempting and because of that many believers are lured in and that's why Jesus says they are tolerating her lies. They're tolerating her lies because tolerance makes no demands. Tolerance is settling for things as they are. Tolerance has no other goal other than keeping the peace and not rocking the boat. Tolerance is stagnant because when we practice tolerance, no one ever is challenged to grow or change. Practicing tolerance is a way to keep things comfortable. And instead of tolerance, Jesus wants to see His followers practice grace. Now. He obviously doesn't use the word grace here, but what we see is, I believe, grace in action. Look at verse 21. Jesus says, I have given her, He's talking about Jezebel, I've given her time to repent of her immorality. And I believe this is the embodiment of grace as we see it defined and described throughout Scripture. And there's three key elements here to the way Jesus carries out His grace. First, grace requires that truth be addressed. We need to speak the truth to people so that they know their behavior falls short of what God expects. The truth is spoken to Jezebel. She is living immorally and teaching immorality. And then second, grace gives people time to consider their actions. Jesus gives her time. And third, grace always has a specific goal. It's the goal of repentance. Repentance leading to change change that results in a more godly character. Grace beats tolerance every time because grace never is stagnant. Grace does not settle for the status quo. Grace prompts us to look at ourselves and others honestly and to invite the Spirit to produce within us a more godly character. Grace prompts us to speak the truth in love to each other so that we can gently help each other to grow rather than let each other settle for less than God's best. And yet, because of that, grace often is uncomfortable. It often involves some challenging, difficult conversations. I find myself wondering how did that happen with Jezebel? We're not told specifically, but somehow, way, Jesus confronts her with her immorality. And it's possible that He just spoke to her supernaturally. I think it's more likely that God prompted someone through the power of the Holy Spirit, someone in that church to move beyond tolerance to grace. And that person went and talked to Jezebel about her destructive lifestyle and her destructive proclamations. And if you've ever been in that kind of a conversation, you know how uncomfortable it can be for both parties and yet those conversations are necessary because grace must begin with the truth. And it's fair to ask, so how do we approach someone? We have to have that kind of conversation. The Apostle Paul gives us a great example, a great set of principles in Galatians 6 1. He writes, If someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Keyword, gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Anytime we need to confront someone, we should do it in love, with gentleness, and with some humility. We need to be humble because we're all subject to temptation, and the fact is the next time around we might be on the receiving end. It might be someone else's turn to confront us about some area of shortcoming in our lives. So we need to be humble. And however it happens here, we don't know, but the key point is that Jezebel is presented with God's truth, and she's urged To repent. See, there is always that goal. Repent. Get right with God. And then, and this is such a key part of grace, she is given time to change. That is what Jesus says, that I have given her time to repent. How long did He give her? We have no idea. Absolutely none. And there are no rules about how much time someone should be given to allow them to ponder and pray and consider whether or not they want to embrace God's truth. And this is one of the primary reasons that grace is so uncomfortable. You see, tolerance is much easier because we never ever confront. And judgmentalism also is much easier because we just get in someone's face and we confront and we demand immediate compliance. Grace is harder because we give people time to listen to the Holy Spirit and prompt them to make whatever changes God might want them to make. And not everyone is going to operate on the same schedule. If someone is struggling with anger, if someone is battling an addiction If someone has questions about their sexuality or their gender identity, we can't force those people and their issues into a regimented timetable. Our role is to get to know them and understand them and love them and find a way to speak God's truth to them in love and then pray that the Holy Spirit Himself would prompt whatever change God might want to bring about in their life. And it may take some time. Grace doesn't shy away from the truth. Grace doesn't shy away from the goal of repentance. But grace allows time. Only Jesus knows how much time people need, so so we have to lean on Him. We need to pray and ask Him for discernment. And He can help us practice grace in our lives the way He practices grace here with Jezebel. He gives her time because He wants her to make the right choice. And it's tragic that she is unwilling to change. And yet that's what happens. Not everybody is willing to change. And why not? Well, usually it's because people are prideful or self-righteous or stubborn or some combination of those things. But it's those kind of attitudes that cause us to dig in our heels and to resist God. And that's not the way to godliness. And because she makes that choice, in some way she says to Jesus, I will not submit myself to you, then Jesus is going to lay out some painful consequences. And we need to notice that it's Jesus, not the church members, who are making those consequences happen. And as we read this description of what Jesus says, I believe these consequences are largely spiritual rather than physical. Specifically, to commit adultery with Jezebel means to be spiritually unfaithful to Jesus by embracing her teaching. And the children of Jezebel that Jesus refers to are her followers. And Jesus says all of these people are going to be harshly punished. And the description here is harsh. And yet we need to recognize that what they are believing and promoting is so destructive to human relationships. They follow the lies of false gods. They engage in casual sex. And they sacrifice the godly principles of their faith to earn a living. None of this is good. It's not good for them, it's not good for the community of faith. And if it's allowed to continue, the community of faith will be damaged. And that's why Jesus says, I'm going to have to step in strongly. And yet we must notice this, that even as He lays out harsh consequences, oh, He is still holding out for grace. Verse 22, here's the consequences, but they can be avoided if the people repent. Our God loves to give people the opportunity to change their minds. He wants to forgive these people and help them develop a more godly character which will be good for them and for those around them. And so because of grace, Jesus always seems to wait until the last minute to give people every opportunity to repent. And that's why grace is is so much more powerful than tolerance. Tolerance leads to stagnation where no one ever is made uncomfortable and no one ever grows. Grace isn't stagnant. Grace prompts growth toward the fullness of Jesus Christ. And thankfully, there are some people in Thyatira who understand this, and they're not practicing tolerance, so they don't follow Jezebel. And Jesus has a word for them. He wants them to keep pressing on, to hold on to Him, and to listen carefully to what the Holy Spirit is telling them. Look how Jesus wraps up this letter, verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, To you who do not hold to her teaching, that's Jezebel's teaching, and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches." These faithful people in Thyatira don't give in to cultural pressure. If they don't do what believers often do in that kind of situation, when we face cultural pressure, we often step back, we barricade ourselves against the world, We, we, we live in this little Christian bubble and fortress. They're evidently not doing that because Jesus earlier said that the church is growing. It's growing because the believers are staying engaged with the people around them. Which means then that this faithful core somehow figures out how and where to draw appropriate lines and we're not hold how, told how they do that. So I find myself wondering. So perhaps you're in a trade and you go to a guild meeting and you know they're going to serve a meal and take some of that food and use it to engage in idol worship and you don't want to be a part of that. So you decide that when you go to guild meetings, that's the night you're going to fast. <laughs> and you don't have to eat the food. You can sit there and smile and enjoy the conversation and let those people do what they're going to do. And you can participate in the business meeting, and afterwards when everyone gets up and troops off to go visit the, te- the, the temple prostitutes, you say, good night, got to go now, and then you just leave. And people might make some comments, but it's a way for the believers to stay engaged with the culture and also stay true to Jesus. And because they stay engaged with the culture and engage with people, then they can love their neighbors. And through relationships, find opportunities to gracefully speak God's truth to those neighbors and hopefully lead some of them to get connected to Jesus Christ. Now, what I've surmised may or may not be true. But it seems to me that followers of Christ, if we pray and ask for wisdom and discernment, that God can show us how to navigate some of the challenges that we face. And Jesus says here, keep at it, keep pressing on. Hold on to me, hold on to what you have, and if you're victorious, I give you two specific promises. And the first promise points to the end of human history as we know it, when God creates a new heaven and a new earth and the kingdom of God comes in its fullness forever. And when that happens, Jesus says, all of His faithful followers are going to live with Him and reign with Him. And we don't know exactly what that looks like. what we do know is this, it's an amazing promise, that faithfulness in this life pays dividends in the next. The second promise is that Jesus will give His faithful followers what He calls here the morning star. And that is a beautiful, beautiful term in Scripture because Jesus Himself is described as the bright and morning star. Jesus wants us to know that in the next life, we will be incredibly close to Him. We're going to get to experience His love and His presence continually. You know, I've often thought how amazing it would have been to be born in the first century. And to be handpicked by Jesus to be one of those original twelve disciples. And to have the privilege of going on the road for three years with Jesus. Jesus listening to Him teach, sharing meals with Him, rubbing shoulders with Him, having that intimate kind of personal connection. I've so often wondered what that might be like. And guess what? When the kingdom of God comes in its fullness, I won't have to wonder and neither will you. Because we will live in intimate fellowship, close connection with Jesus. He will be our ever-present companion. And we will get to do life with the Son of God, each and every day. I don't know about you, but I think that's a promise worth holding on to. I think that's a promise worth living for. And so I want to hold on to Jesus. I want to hold on to what I have. I want to be faithful. And because of what Jesus writes here, I understand that a key way to live out my faith is to ask Him to help me continually discern how to practice grace rather than tolerance. Because as I do that, as you do that, we make a difference in each other's lives. We make a difference in the community outside our doors. Because grace never is stagnant and promotes growth that points people toward Jesus. And the key question for every church in every age is this, are we listening to the Spirit? listening to what the Spirit is prompting us to do in our church, in our community today? That's the key question. Last week I shared with you one of my failures, my failure to be the kind of loving neighbor that God asks me to be and to actually do a better job of loving the people who live right next door to me and down the street. I've not done a good job of investing in those relationships and building connections with the people around me so that I can be a grace-filled person in their life and hopefully begin drawing them to Jesus. This morning, I want to share with you an area where I enjoyed some more success. And it was during the time that I was in the business world before I entered the ministry. In that arena, I was pretty good at building connections. And as a result, I was able to help a number of people get more closely connected to Christ. And yet, just like the believers in Thyatira, I often faced situations where I was tempted and I had to discern how and where to draw the lines. And those of you that work in the marketplace, you know those situations come up. I vividly remember one night uh, at the end of the workday, we were going to go to a business dinner and a bunch of us trooped out of the office and we hopped in Mitch's car and we all drove over to this dinner meeting together. And We talked shop over dinner and then we piled back into Mitch's car, drove back to the office so we could all get our own cars and head home. And we're sitting there in Mitch's car, wrapping up the conversation, and then Mitch reaches into his console and pulls out a hash pipe and lights it up and starts passing it around. I wasn't prepared for that. I wasn't expecting that. What was I supposed to do? Well, I'm a Christian, I don't do drugs. (laughs) That would have gone over like a lead balloon. That would not have been loving and it would have been extremely judgmental. So I decided to just do this. As the hash pipe was passed my way, I said, No thanks. (laughs) And it was just passed on to the next person. And guess what? Nobody cared. Nobody made a comment. And we continued to chat for a little while longer, and then the conversation ended, and we all got in our cars and drove home. And I spent a lot of time pondering that and praying about that because I didn't want to just practice tolerance, I wanted to be a person of grace in their lives. So I didn't back off from that relationship, I stayed engaged. Those guys continued to be my good friends and one of them, a guy named Bob, became a very close friend and we had numerous conversations where I was able to speak God's truth into his life and talk about the importance of confession and repentance and being baptized and becoming a follower of Jesus. And I never pushed him. I just shared God's truth when those openings came up in the conversation. And I gave him time. And I prayed for the Holy Spirit to do his work. And Bob came right to the cusp. Right on the edge of turning his life over to Jesus. And then I got transferred out of state. And we lost contact. And I don't know if Bob ever made that profession of faith. I do know this, that God used me to be an agent of grace in his life. He understood God's truth. He understood that repentance was the goal. And the rest is up to the Holy Spirit. But God helped me move Bob closer and closer to Jesus. There were other co-workers I had who were... The ending of the story was much more conclusive. I think of Renee, who was a spiritually adrift young woman, very spiritually confused. She worked for me on my staff, and and God allowed me to be an agent of grace in her life and help her become a follower of Jesus. A couple of months ago, I got an email from her. That happened more than 35 years ago. I got an email from her, and she said, thank you for talking with me about Jesus in the workplace. And all these years later, she is still faithfully following Christ. Because they didn't just tolerate things, I said, God, help me be a minister of grace to her. I also think of Fred, who was a, a believer in Jesus, a man of faith, but he was working his way up the corporate ladder and he was starting to value position and power and wealth more than Jesus. There in our company, he was really starting to be lured by the spirit of Jezebel. And God allowed me to be an agent of grace in his life. And remind him that we need to stay grounded in Jesus. And I helped Fred get grounded again in Jesus. And not get lured to the point where he put other things ahead of his faith in Christ. And then together we were able to be a witness to the grace of God in that company where we both worked. And these things happened because I never isolated myself. I made the choice to invest lots of time in building relationships. Relationships where, yes, sometimes I had to make difficult decisions about where to draw the lines, and I didn't always do it right. But God showed me how to stay engaged. To build relationships where I could love people, and share God's truth, and draw people toward Christ without yielding to the culture and without sacrificing my values or the core of my faith. And so because of those experiences and because of what Jesus writes here in this letter to the church, I am so convinced that tolerance never will get us toward the goal. Judgmentalism won't get us there, but grace will. And this principle of grace, speaking God's truth gently and in love, inviting people to repent, giving them time for the Holy Spirit to do whatever He wants to do, that principle holds true not just for the business world of Thyatira or America. It holds true for every arena of life in which our lives intersect with others. And for you, maybe it's the classroom where you're a student. Perhaps it's the retirement community where you live. Maybe it's the neighborhood. This principle of grace certainly holds true for us here in this place as part of the church of Jesus Christ. And we need to remember that wherever we are, Jesus sees us. Whatever we're doing, Jesus sees us. And He wants to see us as His followers follow His example and learn to practice grace. Grace that promotes growth and change and transformation. Grace that helps keep believers firmly connected to Christ. Grace that shares God's truth with unbelievers and hopefully leads them closer to Jesus. Are we listening? Are we listening to what the Spirit wants to say to us? in our church today about how to to be agents of grace in this very broken world. Oh, let's be faithful and listen to the Spirit.